Chapter Twenty Four of As We Forgive Them by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Twenty Four contains a terrible disclosure. Many long and dreary weeks had passed before I had sufficiently recovered to leave the house and, accompanied by Reggie, take my first drive. It was mid-April, the weather was still cold, and gay London had not yet returned from wintering in Monte Carlo, Cairo, or Rome. Each year the society swallows, those people who fly south with the first chill of autumn, return to town later, and each London season appears to be more protracted than before. We drove down Piccadilly to Hyde Park Corner, and then, turning along Constitution Hill, drove along the Mall. Here a great desire seized me to rest for a brief while and enjoy the air in St. James's Park. Therefore we alighted, paid the cabman, and, leaning upon Reggie's arm, I strolled slowly along the graveled walks until we found a convenient seat. The glories of St. James's Park, even on an April day, are a joy forever to the true Londoners. I often wonder that so few people take advantage of them. The wondrous trees, the delicious sheet of water, all the beauties of English rural scenery, and then the sense that all around you are the great palaces and departments and offices in which the government of our great empire is carried on, in other words, that commingling of silence at the core of feverish and tumultuous life outside. All these make St. James's Park one of the loveliest retreats in England. These things Reggie and I repeated to each other, and then, under the soothing influence of the surroundings, there came musings and reminiscences and the long silences which come between friends and are the best symbols of their complete accord of feeling and opinion. While we were thus seated, I became conscious of the fact that we were in the spot above all others where one was certain to see pass at that time of day most of the prominent political figures of the hour on their way to their various departments, or to Parliament where the sitting was just commencing. A cabinet minister, two liberal peers, a conservative whip, and an undersecretary passed in rapid succession away in the direction of Story's Gate. Reggie, who took a great interest in politics, and had often occupied a seat in the stranger's gallery, was pointing out to me the politicians who passed, but my thoughts were elsewhere, with my lost love. Now that Mrs. Percival had revealed to me the truth of Mabel's affection, I saw how foolish I had been in making pretense of a coldness towards her that was the very opposite to the feeling which really existed in my heart. I had been a fool, and had now to suffer. During the weeks I had been confined to my room, I had obtained a quantity of books, and discovered certain facts concerning the late cardinal who had divulged the secret, whatever it was, in return for his release. It appeared that Andre Sanini was a native of Perugia, who became Archbishop of Bologna, and was afterwards given the cardinal's hat. A great favorite of Pius IX, he was employed by him upon many delicate missions to the various powers. As a diplomatist, he proved himself possessed of remarkable acumen. Therefore the Pope appointed him treasurer-general, as well as director of the world-famous museums and galleries of the Vatican. He was, it appeared, one of the most powerful and distinguished figures in the College of Cardinals, 
and became extremely prominent for the part he played on the occasion of the entry of the Italian troops into the Eternal City in 1870, while on the death of Pius IX, eight years later, he was believed to be designated as his successor, although on election the choice fell upon his colleague, the late Cardinal Pesci, who became Leo XIII. I was reflecting upon these facts, which I had established after a good deal of heavy reading, when Reggie suddenly cried in a low voice, "'Why, look, there's Dawson's daughter walking with a man!' I glanced quickly in the direction indicated, and saw, crossing the bridge that spanned the lake and approaching in our direction, a well-dressed female figure in a smart jacket of caracol and neat toque, accompanied by a tall, thin man in black. Dolly Dawson was walking at his side leisurely, chatting and laughing, while he ever and anon bent towards her, making some remarks. As he raised his head to glance across the water, I saw that above his overcoat showed a clerical collar with a tiny piece of Roman purple. The man was evidently a canon or other dignitary of the Catholic Church. He was about fifty-five, gray-haired, clean-shaven, and wore a silk hat of a somewhat ecclesiastical shape, a rather pleasant-looking man in spite of his thin, sensitive lips and pale, ascetic face. In an instant it struck me that they had met clandestinely and were sauntering there in order to avoid possible recognition if they walked the streets. The old priest appeared to be treating her with studied politeness, and as I watched him I saw from his slight gesticulations as he spoke that he was no doubt a foreigner. I pointed out the fact to Reggie, who said, "'We must watch them, old chap. They mustn't see us here. I only hope they'll turn off the other way.' For a moment we followed them with our eyes, fearing that, having crossed the bridge, they would turn in our direction. But fortunately they did not, but turned off to the right along the shore of the lake. "'If he really is Italian, then he may have come specially from Italy to have an interview with her,' I remarked. For ever since I had met the monk Antonio, there had seemed some curious connection between the secret of the dead cardinal and the Church of Rome. "'We must try and find out,' declared Reggie. "'You mustn't remain here. It's getting too cold for you,' he added, springing to his feet. "'I'll follow them while you return home.' "'No,' I said. "'I'll walk with you for a bit. I'm interested in the little game.' And rising also, I linked my arm in his and went forward by the aid of my stick. They were walking side by side in earnest conversation. I could tell by the priest's quick gesticulations the way in which he first waved his closed fingers and then raised his open hand and touched his left forearm that he was speaking of some secret and the possessor of it who had disappeared. If one knows the Italian well, one can follow in a sense the topic of conversation by the gestures, each one having its particular signification. Hurrying as well as I could, we gradually gained upon them, for presently they slackened their pace, while the priest spoke earnestly, as though persuading the daughter of the ex-boatswain of the Annie Curtis to act in some way he was directing. She remained silent, thoughtful, and undecided. Once she shrugged her shoulders and half turned from him as though in defiance, when in a moment the wily cleric became all smiles and apologies. They were talking in Italian without a doubt, so as passers-by might not understand their conversation. His clothes, too, I noticed, were of a distinctly foreign cut, and he wore low shoes, the bright steel buckles of which he had evidently taken off. 
as they had come across the bridge she had been laughing merrily at some quaint remark of her companion but now it appeared as though all her gaiety had died out and she had realized the true object of the stranger's mission the path they had taken led straight across to the horse guards parade and feeling a few moments later that my weakness would not allow me to walk farther i was compelled to turn back towards the york column steps leaving reggie to make what observations he could i returned home thoroughly exhausted and very cold even my big frieze overcoat which i used for driving when down at helpstone did not keep out the biting wind so i sat over the fire for fully a couple of hours until my friend at last returned i followed them everywhere he explained throwing himself into an armchair opposite me he's evidently threatening her and she is afraid of him when they got to the horse guards they turned back along birdcage walk and then across the green park afterwards he drove her in a cab to one of fuller's shops in regent street the old priest seems mortally afraid of being recognized before he left the green park he turned up the collar of his overcoat so as to hide that piece of purple at his collar did you discover his name i followed him to the savoy where he is staying he has given his name as monsignor galli of rimini there our information ended it however was sufficient to show that the ecclesiastic was in london with some distinct purpose probably to induce the Seco's daughter to give him certain information which he earnestly desired and which he intended to obtain by reason of certain knowledge which he possessed the days passed with gloom and rain and bloomsbury presented its most cheerless aspect no trace could i discover of my lost love and no further fact concerning the white-haired monsignor the latter had it appeared left the savoy on the following evening returning in all probability to the continent but whether successful in his mission or no we were in complete ignorance dolly dawson with whom reggie had struck up a kind of pleasant friendship more for the purpose of being able to observe and question her than anything else called upon us on the day following to inquire after me and hear whether we had learnt anything regarding mabel's whereabouts her father she told us was absent from london for a few days and she was about to leave for brighton in order to visit an aunt was it possible that dawson having learned of my solution of the cipher had returned to italy in order to secure the cardinal's secret from us i longed hour by hour for strength to travel out to that spot beside the sercio but was held to those narrow rooms by my terrible weakness four long and dreary weeks passed until the middle of may when i had gathered sufficient strength to walk out alone and take short strolls in oxford street and its vicinity burton blair's will had been proved and leighton who visited us several times told us of the recklessness with which the man dawson was dealing with the estate that the adventurer was in secret communication with mabel was proved by the fact that certain checks signed by her had passed through his hands into the bank yet strangely enough he declared entire ignorance of her whereabouts dawson had returned to grosvenor square when one day at noon the footman carter was ushered into me by glaive I saw by his face that the man was excited, and scarcely had he been shown into my room before he exclaimed, saluting respectfully, "'I've found out Miss Mabel's address, sir. Ever since she's been gone I've kept my eyes on the letters sent to post, just as Mr. Ford suggested that I should, 
but Mr. Dawson never wrote to her until this morning. By accident, I think, he sent a letter to the post addressed to her, among a number of others which he gave to the page-boy. She's at the Millhouse Church Endstone, near Chipping Norton. In quick delight, I sprang to my feet. I thanked him, ordered Glave to give him a drink, and left London by the half-past one train for Oxfordshire. Just before five o'clock I discovered the mill-house, a grey old-fashioned place standing back behind a high box hedge from the village street at Church Endstone on the higher road from Aylesbury to Stratford. Before the house was a tiny lawn, bright with tulip borders and sweet-smelling narcissi. A broad-spoken waiting-maid opened the door and ushered me into a small, low, old-fashioned room where I surprised my love crouched in a big armchair reading. "'Why, Mr. Greenwood!' she gasped, springing to her feet, pale and breathless. "'You!' "'Yes,' I said, when the girl had closed the door, and we were alone. "'I have found you at last, Mabel, at last!' And advancing, I took both her small hands tenderly in mine. Then, carried away by the ecstasy of the moment, I looked straight into her eyes, saying, "'You have tried to escape me, but today I have found you again.' I have come, Mabel, to confess openly to you, to tell you something, to tell you, dearest, that, well, that I love you. Love me, she cried, dismayed, starting back and putting me from her with both her small white hands. No, no, she wailed. You must not. You cannot love me. It is impossible. Why? I demanded quickly. I have loved you ever since that first night when we met. Surely you must long ago have detected the secret of my heart. Yes, she faltered. I have, but alas, it is too late, too late. Too late, I exclaimed. Why? She was silent. Her countenance had suddenly blanched to the lips, and I saw that she was trembling from head to foot. I repeated my question seriously, my eyes fixed upon her. Because, she answered slowly at last, in a tremulous voice so low that I could scarce distinguish the fatal words she uttered because I am already married. Married, I gasped, standing rigid. And your husband? His name? Cannot you guess? she asked. The man you have already seen, Herbert Hales. Her eyes were cast down from me as though in shame, while her pointed chin sank upon her panting breast. End of chapter 24. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.